Welcome back to Bibliography, a podcast for people who love a good to-be-read list. I'm David Kern at Goldberry Books here in Concord, North Carolina, and this is a conversation show about the way books make our lives richer. This week's guest is an expert in the history of the American Civil War, the U.S. West, and popular culture, and her name is Megan Kate Nelson. She's been writing about those subjects in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, The Atlantic, the Smithsonian Magazine, Preservation Magazine, and Civil War Times. But she's also the author of The Three-Cornered War, The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West, which came out in 2020 and was a finalist for the 2021 Pulitzer Prize in History. Now, she is the author of a great new book of history called Saving Yellowstone, which is about the historical context in which Yellowstone, the national park, was discovered, preserved, and established as a park. As her website puts it, Saving Yellowstone is a narrative of adventure and exploration, but it's also a story of indigenous resistance, the expansive reach of railroad, photographic and publishing technologies, and the struggles of black Southerners to bring racial terrorists to justice. It reveals how the early 1870s were a turning point in the nation's history, as white Americans ultimately abandoned the higher ideal of equality for all people, creating a much more fragile and divided United States. Recently, Megan Kate Nelson joined me to chat about the books she loves, the challenges of writing history, and much more. So here is that conversation. Thanks for checking it out, and I hope you'll check her book out as well. My first question is the question that I, that I ask everybody to start every episode. Do you remember the first book that you read that you fell in love with? Whether you were 20 or whether you were two, like, do you have any idea what that book was? I think it was probably when I was quite young and we had a book of very lavishly illustrated German fairy tales. Oh, okay. And I remember reading that book over and over and over again. Yeah. And never got tired of it. And I know, <laughs> I know that little kids, <clears throat> you know, that is the way that they, they do it, right? They want mm-hmm. to read books over and over and over again. You know, they finish right. it and they immediately turn back yeah. to the beginning and they start uh, through again. But I remember that being such an immersive world, mm. I think both through the illustrations, but also just through the writing. Yeah. Uh, and because so many of the main characters were children too, I think that's what... Yeah. That's what brought me into that book. Uh, but I really wore it out. And I and I think my parents still have it in their library. It's just a little uh, less lavish now. A little, yeah, a little more thumbed through. <laughs> a little probably covered in some salt and chocolate and various other, you know, snacks yeah. <laughs> from, from reading. But whenever I think about that book, I think particularly about, you know, either just lying in my bed or... Yeah halfway under my bed or in some sort of comfortable position, just yeah. really relishing the the stories in that book. Do you remember which fairy tale or maybe a couple of fairy tales that most stood out to you as a kid that you reread the most? Do you have any idea? Well, I think, I mean, I think they were probably all the sort of classic Grimm's fairy tales with the handsome yeah. girl. Yeah. And, and, and I remember there was one with dragons in it and well, there's gotta be dragons. I know. I mean, this explains <laughs> a lot about my current, uh, television choices for sure. Um, and my, should we segue my, into that? Yeah. <laughs> my love of sci-fi, uh, yeah. in, in both written form and TV form, but, um, but yeah, I mean, and I think I think the most kind of pertinent detail of that, if I go back and sort of track my reading life, is that 
that I could, I could feel myself kind of getting sucked into that world, mm. getting kind of pulled in, um, and completely distracted and able to just ignore everything that was going on, you know, in the house or around me and yeah. just be in the book with the characters. It was that powerful of a, of a narrative experience. And then also a kind of visual experience in the book. I want to come back to like your reading habits as a, as a child and the things that you read when you're not reading history. But do you think that that love of kind of getting sucked into a story, like when you're reading a book about dragons or something has anything, any relationship to your work that you do as a historian where you're, I'm assuming having to kind of get really dive into the research and like the sources and all that kind of stuff. Like, is there something similar about that? I think so. I mean, there's in two different forms, there's an immersive experience in the research process. Mm-hmm. Like when you go to an archive and you're mm-hmm. reading, you have a whole folder of correspondence in a family, for example, and yeah. you're just reading those. It's really easy to get sucked into their world and their yeah. relationships with one another. Uh, and so there's that experience where you kind of, you start reading and then you look up and it's two hours later and the, the archivists are like, we need you to leave now. Yeah. Please relinquish the folder. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> um, so yeah. uh, there's definitely that component. And in terms of writing, I mean, I, my first couple of books were academic books and those uh, I would not call immersive uh, mm. in, in that they were argumentatively driven, you know, yeah. organized by theme, you know, yeah. um, pretty traditional writing. But when I turned in the last two books in Three Cornered War and Saving Yellowstone to narrative history, I think I really just automatically started to channel that experience as a reader um, in all, all kinds of different formats and genres, I think, but, but certainly a lot of fiction uh, and any nonfiction yeah. that, that had that quality where the author is setting you down on the ground with people. And I mm. wanted to achieve that. I wanted to give readers that experience um, because I think that's important with history. I mean, so often, you know, a lot of people complain about, about history and not liking history because they think it's just, oh, it's just, you know, dusty old facts. And yeah, just kind of dry. I to, yeah. I have to memorize these things and, and yeah, dates, a list of dates is not compelling. It's not <laughs> compelling yeah. in any kind of way. So what we want to know about is people. Yeah. Right. Like what were people in the past doing? What were they feeling? How were they living in 3d? Like we live in 3d. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I wanted in these, these previous two books and then in all of my future writing to actually access that and do that kind of work. Well, I mean, I loved how Tiving Yellowstone opened. You've got this like guy who's basically stranded or stranded himself, I guess. He wandered off and he's lost. And like then the rest of the book unfolds from that. And that's, you know, it it reads like a fiction in a sense, like there's an adventure going on there. Mm-hmm. So for you is like, are those adventure stories, those kinds of things, something that you have always read? I mean, beyond whether whether it's sure, whether it's fantasy and there's dragons involved in the in the adventure. But also like, you know, the hatchet type books were those things that you read when you were a kid, like just people having to survive. Um, yeah, I mean, I think journey stories. I mean, that's mm. such a popular narrative style, the, yeah. the journey from one place to another. And, yeah. you know, so many of our beloved books as children are those stories. Yeah. You know, you're you go off and you search for something and then you you have something like The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Like that is a journey tale. People yeah. are constantly moving and they have. Yeah 
an object in mind and they're facing challenges along the way and, and persevering. And, and that is a very compelling narrative form. Yeah. Uh, and, and also when I was a kid, you know, reading voraciously, I also was going off every summer with my parents in the car on these vacations, these two week vacations across the country. Hmm. And so, and we would go all sorts of places. We would go um, to historic sites and amusement parks and national parks and state parks and cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, always have like one special night in a very fancy hotel, <laughs> oh, nice, very fancy dinner. <laughs> That's the time it was like motels and we yeah. would beg, we would beg for the holiday in with the pool, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, but that too, I mean, whenever we would go places, my, my father was a big history nut. And so we'd, you know, careen off the side of the road to the historical markers. And so <clears throat> what I was also doing besides reading was getting a sense of history and a sense of America, um, while moving through it Mm. and going from one place to another. And this is why I love maps. Yeah. Uh, I love, in fact, for saving Yellowstone, I got to contribute to the map that's in the beginning of the book. Oh, nice. That's cool. And and I totally geeked out. I was like, yes, I get to draw (laughs) things. I get to like, yeah look up, you know, uh, previous maps and draw the river here and figure out where exactly where the fort was and, and, Mm. uh, you know, get Hayden on his journey and, and really follow that map. And so I love that kind of aspect also. And so I try to replicate that in the historical writing too, that you are moving with people through places. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that, that was very useful for saving Yellowstone because there yeah. is an edition in the book, which, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was actually really great fun to write those chapters. Um, I was a little mm-hmm. sad when they came back and I was like, Oh, now you're just an EC, writing, but, yeah. um, but yeah, so I think it was those, those two things kind of the, my reading life in, and those fantasy worlds and kind of getting, yeah immersed in those, but then also, um, loving those journey stories. And then also loving that experience of moving from, from place to place and learning new things and seeing new places, um, and learning about them like that. And I think that just really shaped me as a historian. Um, cause I've always written in any mode, whether it was academic or or narrative history, I write about landscapes and I write Mm. about, uh, I like the, the unusual and weird ones. <laughs> so so yeah. the first, you know, I've written about swamps uh, and ruins and deserts mm. and now geothermal basins. <laughs> so so um, I have this theory that like the Little House in the Prairie books wouldn't be so beloved if they had stayed in the prairie at the Little House in the Prairie. Like one of the reasons the series, the series is so beloved is because every book is like, well, I don't know if it's literally every book, but pretty much every book is, they're at some new house Yes. In some new place. And so that helps like create this adventure for them. Mm -hmm. So when you were, when you're working on, when you're thinking about where to, to write, whether it's the geothermal basin or the desert or the swamps, do you think, okay, I want to try this new place, kind of like Charles Ingalls going to a new new place, (laughs) or do you, or does it just kind of like some story comes along and then it takes place in that place? So for you, was it, oh, Yellowstone, is dope. I want to write about Yellowstone or is it this guy, this Hayden guy sounds like an interesting story and it takes you to Yellowstone. I think it depends for each project. The, the swamp book uh, was my dissertation. 
And mm. it's a cultural history of the Okefenokee Swamp in Southern Georgia and Northern Florida. And I came to that project because I was really interested in doing a, a landscape history, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I'm from Colorado. And mm. initially I was like, well, I could write about the West. And I was like, yeah, but I'm from the West. I yeah. don't know. And it's so part yeah. of it was, I want to see these new places. And I was reading at the time, um, Patty Nelson Limerick's book, Desert Passages. Mm. And she is just a really lovely writer um, as a historian and very funny, which I didn't know historians could be <laughs> in, their, in their writing. And, um, and, the, and the desert book was her dissertation. And so I thought, okay. if I want, if Patty Nelson Limerick wrote about deserts and she's a Western historian and I want to write about the South, which I had sort of started to focus on as a region, yeah. what is the iconic Southern landscape. And I, I still to this day, don't really understand why I immediately thought swamps. Um, but that in itself was interesting that I would make that connection that I would, mm. you know, the South has lots of different landscapes. It has beaches and mountains and <laughs> valleys yeah, right. and, yeah, exactly. and cities and all kinds of places. But for some reason I thought swamps. And then I was like, Oh, has anyone written about swamps before? And very few people had, and I had a couple swamps to choose from and I chose the Okefenokee because no one had written a book on it yet. And so that was, you know, that was a very calculated move on my yeah. part. But, but when I was in, when I was mucking around in the Okefenokee, there were a lot of ruins there. And so I started hmm. thinking about ruins. Initially, mucking like, about in the Okefenokee is, <laughs> I imagine that's like a quite literal wave. That you probably were mucking around the swamps. I was, I yeah. was, I was kayaking around. I was. That's so cool. I, yeah, it was it was very fun to go and visit the Okefenokee and do a couple of, couple of tours with locals and go to the state park. There were lots of alligators out and about. So I have a friend, he lives in Nashville now. His name is Jonathan Rogers, but he has a series of middle grade books called The Bark of the... The first one's called The Bark of the Bog Owl, but they're all inspired by growing up in growing up there in oh. that part of Georgia. So he wrote like three or four of them. And it's they're like these like fantasy, almost like but they have a sense of historical fiction about them. So oh. if you like, if you did writing on there, I bet you'd like those. They're like, they're middle grade books, you know, they're for kids, but the, yeah. there's definitely a lot of, like there's a whole um, people in them called the Fichis and they live in the Fichi Fen, which is like the swamps. So they're like swamp people. Nice. So. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, the and swamps are such imaginative places, right? Cause they're so, it's hard to see through the trees. Sometimes the yeah. water is filled with tannin. So you can't actually see what's underneath the surface, which yeah. I mean, it makes it ideal. I mean, there's no, it's no coincidence that a lot of horror movies are set in <laughs> yeah. swamps too, yeah. right? Horror movies and love stories, right? Yes, exactly. And, <laughs> and adventure stories, you know, yeah. people going in and maybe getting lost and trying to find their way out, you know, things like that. But they're, they're such a great landscape of, of opportunity in that regard um, to write about or think about a whole host of things. Um, but there were ruins there too. And so I started thinking about that and I thought my second book would be about ruins in the 19th century, but that was mm. way too big. That was like enormous. Oh, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> so I narrowed it, I narrowed it down to the civil war. Like, which, <laughs> yeah. Which as you know, I mean, in North Carolina, you know, like yeah. the, the civil war is big enough. I mean, there's yeah. a ton of material there. Mm -hmm. um, and once I was in the civil war, I, started learning about these battles in the West in New Mexico. And, you know, being from Colorado, I'd never heard about these battles at all. Yeah. And so that interested me. 
And I've always loved deserts. I've always loved them. Um, there's something about the big skies and the just yeah. expansiveness of, of yeah. that ecosystem that really appealed to me. Plus it's also a little bit creepy and dangerous because, you know, yeah. if there's, no, if there's uh, no water and you have no access to it, you're not going to last very long. Things change so, so fast too. They really do. They really do. Uh, and once I came back West, I kind of stuck there and mm. Uh, I found the Yellowstone project again through Three Cornered because I was researching surveyors and surveying because one of the protagonists in that book is a surveyor and was reminded of the Hayden survey. I had actually studied it before in grad school as part of an art history class. Oh, cool. Um, Because Hayden had with him- The photographer, yeah. Jackson, yeah, and Thomas Moran. And they produced some of the most spectacular images of the West in this period. So- I had known about him, but this was back in about 2018. And I just, I, I remember thinking, oh my God, the 150th anniversary is coming up of his expedition. And then the Yellowstone Act, which he oh, yeah. pretty much uh, propelled into being um, with the help of, of some very well-placed fellow lobbyists. But, um, and, you know, anniversaries are such a nice moment for us to really reckon yeah. with places and events and why they were yeah. important then and why they're yeah. important now. So, but, and, and then I thought, oh, I'd get to go to Yellowstone. <laughs> <laughs> smart, smart. Yes. Had you been to Yellowstone before? I went to Yellowstone for the first time in 1982. Okay. I was 10 on one of those family vacations. Yeah. So uh, I actually asked my dad after I finished the book, I asked my dad if he could go root around in the garage and find the slides from that trip. Oh, yeah. That's cool. (laughs) So he did. And then I was, he sent them to me and I was able to send them to one of those businesses that converts them into JPEGs. So I have these great pictures of, you know, (laughs) me and my brother and we're in our like powder jackets, which were all the rage in 1980. Yeah. Yeah, Look and fly. And our Nikes are like first iteration of Nikes, the kind of blue swoosh. And oh yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty rocking. We were looking pretty good. Um, but yeah, that, and I remember that trip. I remember it. We went from there to Glacier and then we Mm. went into Canada. Um, and I think I was most, I think I remembered Yellowstone and I thought it was cool. Um, but I was most excited about the fact that when we got into Canada, uh, we went, we were there for, um, a big rodeo there. Uh, Like in Calgary? Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I rode a horse for the first time. Oh, nice. How, how, how'd that go? I mean, I'm not a good horsewoman. Let's just <laughs> say, um, mostly because I, I really like the horse and I want the horse to do what it wants. Mm-mm. And so I don't ride the horse well. Cause I'm like, Oh, horse, just go do whatever yeah. you want. No. And then the horse, you know, does what it wants to do. And, yeah. and kicks me off the back because I've run into a tree branch, you know, yeah. it's, it's like yeah. Yeah. that That wasn't great, but the Calgary stampede was a delight uh, for that reason. So that is the thing that sticks with me most, but I, but I did remember Yellowstone and then I actually didn't go back for 39 years. Wow. I know I was supposed to go back uh, in May of 2020. Mm. Um, I had, you know, was just started writing yeah. a book and of yeah. course the pandemic Yeah. Derailed that plan as it has derailed 
so many other plans for yeah. so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's like, you know, the least of, of anyone's worries <laughs> that your plans get canceled, but, uh, I had been planning to go, but I did manage to get back just this past September and it mm. was, it was pretty glorious. Oh, I bet. Especially probably added to it that you'd done all this research and you're finally getting to like see these things that you'd been researching and like actually set foot there. Exactly. And I was, I was sort of this great tour guide just in our own car. I was driving. Oh, yeah. husband. I was like, okay, we're, <laughs> over here. we're pulling yeah. over here, you know, and yeah. we, you know, we passed the sign. It said Hayden Valley on it. And I was like, I have to get a picture with that sign. Like this. Yeah. <laughs> pull the car over. He's like, oh my God, I can't pull it over. <laughs> Where? Where am I going to pull? <laughs> I can't do it. There's a bison. <laughs> exactly. There's a huge bison over there. We're not going to tangle with him. And that was, and we did not tangle with him, but, but no, yeah. it was, it was really great to, to be there and to see everything that they had seen. And, you know, Hayden mm. succeeded in lobbying for the Yellowstone Act and and they preserved it just really six or eight months after he was there. And so, yeah. except for the, the infrastructure, the t- tourist infrastructure that was mm. built since then, much of the park, except for natural change, remains pretty close to how it was when he saw it. So that, that feels very remarkable, right? Yeah, um, it's been a long yeah. time. Yeah. And really, and really special that we have a place like that, that has been preserved, um, and sort of kept out of, out of major development, um, and production for so long. Yeah. We're not a country that's like super into keeping things, keeping old things old, like no. whether it's buildings or whatever. No. Yeah. We when know. I was a, Very uncomfortable with that. Yeah. When I was a kid, we, um, lived in Boise, Idaho for a while. And so <laughs> my dad's family was all from Wisconsin. So we would drive in the summer times and we'd go up through Yellowstone. So yeah. we would, we'd camp sometimes we'd stop in West Yellowstone. Nice. And so when I saw this book was coming out, like when I saw the cover, I was like, oh, super excited. I was like, I got to talk to this person. Oh, good. Uh, Cause we just spent so many, you know, so many hours camping and like being told, look, you can't, 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 can't camp down there. There's grizzly bears. Oh, man. <laughs> um, yes, and then like, yeah. Um, you know, there's so many things that people recognize from, from Yellowstone, right. um, whether it's specific landmarks or whatever, but is there something that along the way of your research and then getting to go again, um, that stood out to you as maybe like something worth seeing or visiting that's not part of the typical, you know, typical tour. Oh, well, I will, I will say my favorite part of the park, uh, is the mud volcano region, Hmm. which kind of sits in between Yellowstone Lake and the lower falls. Um, and it's right there along the edge of the Yellowstone river. And it's just, it's really beautiful. And I think people do stop there because it's, you know, it is on the route and there are like, you know, very nice parking spaces and you can go do this, but there is, there's a particular walk that where you pass a bunch of, of mud volcanoes, you know, throwing (laughs) everywhere. And then at the top of the hill, you're climbing kind of back into the hills and there's an acid lake. Oh, wow. I don't don't think we did that. (laughs) Oh yeah. And I was like, Ooh, geez. Oh, stay away. Like, how did they figure out, you know, cause how'd they figure out that that was acid? Yeah. That means that Hayden's guys or future scientists had to go in and actually dip in the vial Mm. and like, test it to see. And, you know, mm. I hope no one actually jumped in there <laughs> thinking it was a, 
regular freshwater lake because that someone been might have hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yes, yes. And there's also another a, a kind of mud pot feature that just opened up 15 years ago. So Hayden oh, wow. would not have seen it. Oh, it was cool. It was just created. And that seemed remarkable to me. That actually yeah. sort of huh. exemplified everything that I was trying to understand about Yellowstone in my research that hmm. here is a place where you can see all of this crazy stuff happening on the surface. But then what it is an indication of is that there's even more stuff mm. going on underneath the surface mm. <laughs> and that these things can open up and, and take you down. And, and this is the place actually in the book, if you remember where Hayden actually fell through mm. into. So, the okay. So, but he didn't know that he didn't see what we would see now. No, not, okay. not all of it. I mean, some of it I think was there that the conditions have probably changed a little bit because with climate change has come because so yeah. much of the geothermal features are fed by groundwater. Mm. Rainfall levels matter. And so, you know, he, he probably saw a slightly different version. He certainly didn't see the new feature that had just opened up. Um, but he was there and he actually fell in and he managed to extricate himself, but he was in there long enough that the, the feature actually burned the boots off his legs. Mm. And, you know, this was a moment of real peril. And this is a he walks back into camp with just the pieces of his boots because it, it melted the sinews. Like, well, you said it's got an adventure story has to have peril. Yes. So. Yes. <laughs> yes. And and all in all, you know, I think they were surprised at how well they did. Like they actually did OK. Um, not a lot of injuries, not a lot of illness. Um, all of the kind of disasters that there were came afterward. Um mm. So while they were in the park, they actually did okay. You know, they lost yeah. some materials off the side of cliffs. They, you know, one yeah. of their mules sadly died, like falling down. But for the most part, they were all right. So here was this, you know, sort of crazy moment where Hayden is reminded of how dangerous this place can actually be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it is dangerous. And yeah. I was I was really interested in that tension that here's this place of just incredible beauty. Uh, but also it's, it's a little bit terrible. It's yeah. a little bit <laughs> life-threatening. I think a lot of the great, I guess going back to books, a lot of the great adventure, nature, travel books that we think of, whether they're about like Greenland or they're about the national parks in our country, they they have that like sense of shock and awe, right? Like there is this sense of this is a great this is a very beautiful place, but also a very dangerous place. And I'm wondering if, as you, like, in your reading life, are there books, travel, adventure, nature books, that that have kind of been inspiring to you as a writer um, and as someone who likes to, like, loves these places and wants to capture them right. and capture that aspect of them? Oh, my God. There are so many, I mean, this is the hard thing. I knew you were going to ask questions about this actually. And I was like, oh my God, how will I choose? Cause I have these, like, <laughs> who I'm are my at, friends? <laughs> I, well, yeah. Well, and I'm looking at my bookcase. That's like all environmental history and land yeah. studies. And I'm like, yeah. look at my bookcase. That's all Southwest. And then yeah. this one behind me here is Yellowstone. That's for the new project. And I'm like, mm. oh my God, there's so much good work. And all of it is, is so useful. Um, yeah. I will say, so there's a guy, and this is a very old book, 
um, or a, like an old series of essays, but there's a landscape historian named J.B. Jackson who wrote a series of articles. He was very active in the kind of the 1960s and 70s. Um, and there's a collection of his um, most famous essays called Discovering the Vernacular Landscape. And the reason that I love that book, and I've often taught it and I go back to it, is that by landscape, he means not only nature, but also the landscapes we build as mm. people. So mm. there are articles in there about town parks. There are, there's an article about mobile home parks, um, about airport infrastructure, um, mm. <laughs> all sorts of interesting, weird, cool things where you don't think about it. You're kind of moving through these places. Yeah. You're not thinking about them as American landscapes because they mm. don't, you're used to thinking about a place like Yellowstone or like full on nature. Um, but I have always wanted, and I think this goes also back to those, those family trips when I was a kid that I'm always interested in things like roads and towns and Hmm. all of this kind of support network that helps you move through space, um, and go places. Right. Uh, and, So that was very present to me in Saving Yellowstone also, because Hayden could not have done what he did without the Transcontinental Railroad. Yeah. Without the merchants in the, in Salt Lake city who had, you know, been there since the late 1840s and were basically enabling the gold rush. were enabling like white migrations to California just by their presence. Like you could stop over there and do these things. Um, and you know, he was helped by military installations that were providing him with horses and with soldiers to protect him. So there is this great natural landscape kind of at the heart of the book, but there are also these other elements. And mm. J.P. Jackson's work, I think, really helped me just look for that, right? Like, just be aware of that. Because often the best books are the ones where you think, oh, man, I didn't even think about that before. And it will never yeah. be the same. Yeah, I'll never see it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I will never see it again in the same way. Like Carl Mm. Jacoby's book, Crimes Against Nature, which is a history book. It's about the Adirondacks and Yellowstone and Grand Canyon. And it's about the rural people who lived in those places, um, white and indigenous, and how when states and the federal government came in to preserve these places, they sort of criminalized hunting Mm. and camping and, Mm. you know, doing all of these things that indigenous people and rural people were doing, um, to, to survive and pushing them out of these lands. And, um, when I read that book, I mean, that was a book from, I think the late, it's like 2001, maybe. Um, and when I read that book, it was transformative in Mm. how I thought about national parks, because then I thought, Oh, right. Like they're not just this, Oh, let's preserve nature. Like there is a, a cost to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a process to it also, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you actually have to preserve a place through congressional action for the most part. So a government has to decide that it's worthy of keeping and then mm-hmm. people get shoved out. Um, mm-hmm. and your behavior is constrained and you're supposed to act in a completely new way. And so that was the book that really just shifted my whole view of mm. what national parks are and, and other crimes events. against nature. Yeah. Crimes against nature. Yeah. Carl Jacoby. So do you have any books 
that you would recommend, maybe one or two titles that you would recommend as kind of like uh, great places to start for people who maybe haven't read a lot of uh, environmental history, but would like to learn more about it? I mean, obviously we're at this very complex place in our country for from that, in that topic. Right. And um, it's semi-fraught, I guess, <laughs> in certain mm-hmm. circles. Um, but if, if, who would you turn to? I mean, there's a lot of like classic travel writers that cover this, whether it's, and then you've got all the Leopold and stuff, but would you say like start with someone like that? Or was there someone who's writing now that you would say, this is who you should turn to if you want to learn more about this, but it's not, maybe you typically read about the civil war or you just, read, or you just read Lord of the Rings 27 times a year, <laughs> but, but this is an area you want to like learn more about. Right. Right. The starter um, kit, I guess. Oh my gosh. A starter kit. Oh, I feel like I need to like think really deeply and at length about this. Well, because, you know, environmental history is so interesting because you have like the urban historians who do it. You have the people who talk about nature. You have someone like William Cronin, who's written a couple of big books, um, but an incredibly influential essay called The Trouble with Wilderness. um, Oh, I read that. Yeah, which has the like, and, and that I think the trouble with wilderness is a great article to start with because it really does blow up that perception <laughs> that you might yeah. have that the wilderness is just empty nature waiting right. to be uh, enjoyed, right? Mm. And, you know, there are some really good just sort of general histories of national parks. Um, there's the Alfred, the Alfred Runty. That's, I was like, is it, how do you say, I think that's how you you say his last name. R-U-N-T-E. Um, R-U-N-T-E. Uh, yeah. So he, he wrote this big, you know, book on national parks and it's a pretty good introductory survey. Um, it, it may not have some of the nitty gritty, especially on indigenous history and land dispossession. Um, but I believe this is the book that, um, that Ken Burns used to okay. kind of frame the, the national parks docuseries that he did. Yeah. yeah. It's so influential, right? I mean, yeah. the, this is, this is the way we see some books make their mark as they get adapted into visual culture, which yeah. is nice. Um, but yeah, he just kind of takes you through, um, this emergence of the park idea, what it actually meant to create parks. Um, and I can't remember where he ends chronologically, I think into like into the 21st century, like what are the challenges facing national parks today? Um, so that would just be like a good general, um, general read for people who are just interested in the history of national parks like in general. Um, but I did read, and this is not, this is not an environmental historian, um, a bit of a travel writer, but there's a new book out called leave only footprints. It was maybe oh, yeah. two years ago. And the guy like who goes, he like goes through the parks. He goes to every single yeah. one. He goes to, to all 63 national parks. And what I liked about that book is that, you know, so, so often, you know, the big books, they can't, they can't go to everyone. Right. And so often you'll get, there's a lot of attention to Glacier and to Yosemite and to Yellowstone for good reason. Um, and then we get, a, you know, a couple of the Eastern parks, but what Connor Knightson's doing in that book, I mean, he's a journalist and he's also kind of coming off this canceled wedding. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. Where his fiance has left him. And so he's, the book starts with him cry, driving across, I think, North Dakota and crying. Um, Who among because, us hasn't done that? I, 
seriously. I probably cried on one of those trips. Um, some, some vast yeah. open spaces to cry in there. Yes. And what that book does that I think is really interesting is it groups the national parks into different kinds of categories. So there are different themes. So there's a water theme and a mystery theme and, you know, a kind of volcanism theme, um, which is volcanoes, not like Vulcans from Star Trek. But like, um, and, and he brings these places together based on these really kind of interesting connections between them that you wouldn't think otherwise. Um, you wouldn't think of otherwise. And he also, he has pretty good history in there. The history is pretty decent. And he also just has some witty asides and he talks to people current day. So for people who are interested in having a kind of another broad sweep of national parks, but in a more informal way and a book that, you know, you can kind of read a couple chapters and, yeah. read and then go, um, and you just want to learn like a little bit about a lot of stuff that would be, that would be my choice. Definitely. That's Connor Knighton's Leave Only Footprints. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I don't have, we don't have a lot of time left. I got to let you go. Ooh. Okay. But is there a book? I've got, I guess, two questions for you at the end here. Um, if you got time for two? Yes. Okay. Is there a book that while you were doing your, your research kind of like popped up and surprised you as like, where has this book been all my life? When, <laughs> like I'm a historian and I just discovered this book and like, it's got so much information and like, um, or it could just be, it could be like an essay or something like that, but something you read that kind of blew your mind as you were specifically working on saving Yellowstone. I mean, the, the book that I found, so this is good. This is a crazy response to that. So, <laughs> so this book, which is very large, I'm, yeah, sh- big book. I'm showing it. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm showing it to David right now. You can't see it on the podcast, but I'm like, look how big this book is. <laughs> So this book is called Bursting. It looks like a Norton anthology or something. I know, right? And it's got it's got very small font. I'm sorry to have to tell you, but it's called Bursting the Limits of Time. It's by Martin Redwick. And it's a history of science and it's a history of geohistory. Oh wow. And how scientists were understanding um, how old the earth was, how the earth formed. And how, like what mechanisms they were using, were they using fossils? Were they using testing? Like, how were they actually determining all of, all of this, um, about the earth's age and then how were Mm. they really shaping the field of geology, Mm. uh, in the kind of late 18th century into the 19th century. And it's fascinating. And, and a lot of it is about European scientists. And so, when I was when I was writing about Hayden, it was very important for me to understand like where he was fitting into not only mm. the scientific yeah. conversations, but also because you know science in this moment was really run by um, elite people. Yeah, and like seven Hayden, guys. Yeah, and and Hayden was Hayden was not elite. Like he was born mm. into poverty. He was a child of divorce. He was very scrappy. And so he had to like claw his way in to this scientific world. And so Rudwick's book, I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did. I really kind of nerded out on it. Um, It took you 17 years to read, but. I know exactly. It took me a long time. I was like, oh my God, how much? But so, so useful and so, um, so helpful for me in, in positioning Hayden and sort of understanding what the scientific knowledge was at this moment. I mean, they didn't know about plate tectonics yet. Right. Right. right? So they're just trying to figure it all out. And it's people like Hayden who goes out collecting fossils 
across the West who's helping scientists figure it out, like mm. in the United States and in and in Europe. So um, I would say that probably was the book that, you know, I picked it up because I was like, oh, I really need to know this background. I need it. And then it arrived and it's like massive. And I was like, oh no. What have like, I gotten myself what into? I, exactly. What have I gotten myself into? Um, but it was really, really interesting. There are lots of characters in mm. the scientific community. Um, <laughs> and they're, yeah, they're all very ambitious and competitive, which is, you know, amazing for us. So were you, like when you were in school, were you really into geology and science and things like that in addition to no. history? Was that natural to you? No. <laughs> really, I took some science classes, yeah. uh, but mostly I was interested. I was interested in history and I was interested in literature. Hmm. So I also probably, you know, when I'm not doing research for my books, I read fiction. Okay. Um, pretty, I read fiction. I read, I read long form journalism, um, but mostly it's fiction. Um, okay. So let's segue to our last, my last question then yes. this, I'm going to like, I, I'm going to do, this is like a bit of a bit. A bit of a bit. Uh, Mount Rushmore, it's a national park, right? So let's talk about like, let's like do that awful thing where someone asks you if you could name your Mount Rushmore of books. Like there's these four oh. presidents on the mountain, right? So like if you're, another way of saying it is like, you're, you're stuck in a desert. Let's not even call it a desert island. I've never really understood the desert island thing. You're stuck in a desert yeah. and, or you're on a journey to explore somewhere and you can only bring four books because mules can only carry so many books. Then what are you taking with you? Like in other words, like what are the books like you David, this question is go back so to? unfair. This I know. I know. So That's why I end with it because I'm like getting, you know, it like makes you mad. So if we end with it, then you know. <laughs> oh no. Um, I mean, they probably would all be, well, I mean, I think I would want a book that I haven't yet read, which is How to Survive in a Desert. I mean, I think I'd want that book, first Smart. of all. Smart. I'd want, yeah. so, it probably would be as big as... Uh, yes, but that's okay. That's okay. Because then once you're done reading it and you've basically memorized it, then you can just use it for to light fires. Yeah, right? fuel. I mean, yeah, that's right. That's what okay. it should. True, yeah. <laughs> you do. So very practically, yeah. very practically, I'd have some field guide uh, to surviving in that context. Um, but I, I think I would probably choose novels for the rest of it. Um, just because I would need to just, yeah. again, immerse myself in a place that was what do you, not, what do you turn back to? Like, what do you, like, what are the books that you go back to that, or that, that just like stick in your consciousness or you're like, they rattle around inside of you, <laughs> oh make you God. who you are, I guess. Oh my gosh. Oh, I should have thought about this so much more. I mean, the, the, sorry. I, I, okay. It's kind of an impossible question. I admit it is such an impossible question. I mean, definitely it one changes. of the books, one of the books. Okay. This is not fiction, but one of the books would probably be Thoreau. It would either be Walden or the collected works. Okay. Um, like the, I, the, the journals or the, um, um, like, like a like, book of his essays. Yeah. Anything that included the essay walking, which okay. I think is just an amazing essay where he does end up like going by a swamp, which is why I was interested in it in the first place. Mm. But yeah, I really, I think with Thoreau, you either really love Thoreau or you really do not. <laughs> and I am one of those people who really loves Thoreau. Um, yeah, I, like I also Thoreau. love Moby Dick. Like, and that it's, that's the case for that book too. Like mm. you either love it or you hate it. Like, yeah, you, yeah. You're, like you gotta be okay with a lot of whale stuff. 
yeah, you have to be okay with a lot of whale stuff, but the writing is so beautiful. And, mm. and in, um, in Walden and in a lot of, of Thoreau's other works, I mean, the way that he writes about nature is just so, it's so interesting and it's so vivid and, and mm. there are passages that still stick with me for sure. Um, so I would definitely bring, and, you know, since he was out kind of, well, he wasn't really in the wilderness. I live just a couple of miles from Walden. <laughs> so I can tell you like very close to Concord. Like he was not, he could get there if he needed to. He could walk two miles and he often did to like, go get his clothes washed and eat yeah. some pie, you know? Yeah. So he was not out in the middle of nowhere, just yeah. sitting on his own. He had, he had a lot of help, but for that kind of scenario, when you're out somewhere um, and you may be stuck, I think that that would be a good book to have with you. Um, you got, you might get annoyed at him by the end and just, you know, again, want to, feed feed the book to the fire but. that's why i like the journals because sometimes those you just like short short instances of thoreau and then you can move that's on right. that's right um i will say the book that i've probably read most over and over is pride and prejudice read that in high school of course so loved good. it yeah I mean, and I, you know i was a teen girl i was like yes yeah i am i'm here for all of this right yeah. Um, and that's a book that's not about adventure. I mean, you're pretty much in one place or just a, you know, a couple of different places, although she does go on the, the trip to Pemberley, but, um, which is iconic, but yeah. that is a, that is just a delightful kind of novel about social class and about relationships yeah. and about family, um, that I could really, I could be down with that. If you There's just want romance. to read romance, it's got the romance. If you want to read about oh, like yeah. English culture of the era, you can oh, really yeah. dig deep. Yeah, yeah. So, so good. So good. Um, and I'd probably, what would my last book be? I might want to have, see, now I'm diverging too, because I only have one <laughs> book in there now. It's like I have my field guide. I have Walden, which is like essays. And then I have um, Pride and Prejudice. And I'm thinking I would probably want some poetry. And it, in, uh, in that case, it would be Langston Hughes. Oh, okay. Is one of the greatest American yeah. poets. Um, and just just beautiful and evocative poetry and so real and truthful. So, so we've got Hughes. Yeah. We've got Thoreau. Yeah. And we've got... We've got Austin. Yeah. And then our unnamed... <laughs> oh yeah right our feel under guide. guide yeah which maybe you, maybe you should write before you go <laughs> yes which will tell me how to build a house out of or you know whatever well, just, it is you just order one help. of those those house yeah. those house building kits from from the sears catalog in 19 in 1918 that's right that's right yeah so i think that's a very eclectic uh group for you i, I, I think so you you'd have you'd be you have a variety definitely a variety of depending on the mood you have um like a go-to historian who has been like super influential or, or in, inspirational to you, maybe not influential. mean, I don't mean like in the sense that he was, he or she was like a teacher. <laughs> I just right. mean like someone who is kind of been an in, inspiration to you could be somebody from 1742. I mean, mm -hmm. I think right now I'm, I'm really inspired by all the work that, that Patty Nelson Lamarck has written. Um, she's a Western historian. She's the one that wrote Desert Passages. She wrote Desert Passages. And then she, her most famous book is called Legacy of Conquest. And it changed the way that people thought about the West. It really pushed against that frontier myth. Um, and again, this is one that was published a while ago, but is still yeah. 
you know, it's on everybody's syllabus for every U.S. Western course that you would ever yeah. teach. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, a foundational text. And again, she is just a writer. Her writing is very vivid and her writing is also very funny. Mm. And um, it's hard to be funny uh, about the past. <laughs> yeah. Often. yeah. yeah. Um, Some of it's so bleak. Yeah, it doesn't take you there naturally, um, yeah. you know, but her arguments are also really, really good. And she has turned recently to doing a lot more public facing work, shorter yeah. work. She's really yeah. interested in pushing the boundaries of what we think of as history and what genre is. Um, she's out at the University of Colorado when okay. running the Center for the American West out there. And they're having really good conversations with writers about yeah. how to write history and how to do it well. Um, and so, yeah, I really aspire to that. I aspire to the kind of uh, writing career that she has had mm. in the field. So, well, like 75% of the history that I read is about the American West. Cause growing up out there, uh, it was yeah. like, you know, something that's just always been interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I've never actually read legacy of conquest. So I need to do that. Uh, put that high yeah. up on my list. I don't know. why. Let me know. Yeah. Know. When you read it, let me know what you think. I will. Yeah. yeah. Well, Megan, thank you so much for, for joining me for this conversation about books and, and national parks. <laughs> it's been fun. National parks and dragons. Yeah, and, there were some dragons too. And I like, Jane Austen. I mean, if, we didn't think we were going to go to all those places, did we? True. But like <laughs> any conversation that like doesn't have dragons and Jane Austen in it like is lacking. So we, we covered the bases and true. thank you so much. It's been really fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. That was Megan Kate Nelson. Her new book, Saving Yellowstone, is available wherever books are sold right now. Please do order from your local bookshop. But if you'd like to order from our shop, you can head to bookshop.org slash shop slash Goldberry Books, or you can always come by sometime. Thanks to Megan Kate Nelson for coming on the podcast and for recommending so many great books to add to the uh, to the to-be-read list. Well, this has been Bibliography. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for checking out our show. Hope you've discovered a great new book to check out. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>